Welcome to Christ Chapel College, the college outreach of Christ Chapel Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We hope everyone experiences what Jesus calls abundant life. So we unapologetically point to Him as the source of life and joy. If you're a college student in the Fort Worth area, we'd be stoked to connect with you. Find out more at ChristChapelCollege.org and on Instagram at ChristChapelCollege. Let's jump into Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, if you're, if you're new with us, uh, we are going through the book of Romans. We started at the beginning of the school year, and we have just been going systematically uh, through this book. We are the second half of Romans 13 this morning is, uh, is where we're going to be, and we're going to wrap up this chapter. Romans 13, there's a couple of parts to it, so I'm going to warn you now. There's a part one and a part two, and you're going to forget about the part two, and you're going to think we're landing on the plane, and then I'm going to pounce the, the part two, and you're going to be like, what? But don't worry, we'll be timely. It'll, it'll fit, and it'll, it'll all connect, I promise. Uh, it's going to be about how we treat other people, and then also how we treat ourselves, or how we are called to live ourselves. And so that's really what Paul's doing. One of the incredible things, and I, I know I've talked about this several times the last few weeks, is the way the Apostle Paul, who, who's the author of Romans, wrote this book is the first 11 chapters that we, we spent the first semester and a half in were really just deep, deep, deep theology. And then starting in chapter 12, it's just super practical. How do we now live in light of this God? And so uh, this morning is going to be no exception. It's super practical. So we're going to read, uh, start in verse 8. And we're going we're gonna to just take verse 8 for a second. And, and let me set up the context here. If you were here last week, you remember at the beginning of chapter 13, Paul talks about how we need to submit to government. And he ends that little section, verses 6 and 7, right before this, uh, talking about how we pay our taxes. We need to pay our taxes. You submit to a government. You don't agree with them. But there's this idea that God is behind these things. God's ultimately in control. Sometimes we don't understand. And so he has this idea of he's saying, uh, pay your taxes. That's important because here's how he starts verse 8. And I want you to see the context. He says, owe no one anything, right? So his train of thought, pay your taxes. And then in verse eight, he says, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Okay, we've got a huge claim here that Paul is, is introducing to us. And what he's saying is, hey, don't owe, don't be in debt to anyone. Pay your taxes. Uh, don't be in debt to anyone. However, except, don't do that, except love love each other for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And this is a huge, huge claim. It's a revolutionary idea here to love each other. He's making the claim fulfills the law. Now, Paul would have been talking to an audience of mainly Jewish people who would have had a very specific context when they heard the law, right? That these Jewish people, the entire Old Testament, they would have been their life and worldview was built on this idea that, man, there is a law. This is what it means to follow God. This is what it looks like. This is how I do it. And I was given these, these 10 commandments in the Old Testament, and then I was given these whole books of how to function and how to interact and how to approach a holy God. And so I was given the law. And so um, not just these people, but their fathers and their grandfathers and their great-grandfathers and their grandfathers before that, generationally, this idea of, I've got to follow the law in order to approach this holy God has always been, um, at least at this point, had become the backbone of what so many of these believers, uh, how they functioned with God. And here Paul is making this huge claim, if you love each other, 
then that fulfills all of that laundry list of laws that you're supposed to uh, follow up with. And that's huge. I mean, could you imagine, I have never, um, I've never been a part of a sorority, believe it or not. Um, I've never been invited, so some of you also feel that pain. I also am in that camp with you. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a, I, I hear it's a hard process, right? They don't call it rush, they call it recruitment now, which is sweet, that's really cute of y'all. Um, it's, it's this really difficult process, right? And you gotta go through all these things and it's like there's all these things that last for like a year and you gotta do all this stuff so that you can kind of get to the end of that year and then you're at some status and the whole deal, right? Could you imagine if all of a sudden it was like, here's what it takes. I mean, you got to pay money. You got to follow this. You got to, you know, kind of play the game in a certain way. And it's sweet and good and yay. But here, here we have, like, could you imagine if somebody came along and said, hey, yeah, yeah, all of that stuff to get in or this would fulfill all of that too. You could just do this and that would fulfill all that. You'd be like, well, let me do that. That sounds way better and way easier and potentially way cheaper, right? <clears throat> For my parents, right? So, um. Mom and dad, I see you, um, right? And so, so that's what's happening. So the Jewish people had this framework of here's how we approach God. Whoa, 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 whoa. All of the law is fulfilled if I just love somebody else? It doesn't, that's huge. That's mind-blowing in the context of the audience that Paul was writing to in Romans. Look at verse 9 and 10 because he kind of doubles down on that idea, explains it a little better. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So what he just did was he then said, hey, in case we're not clear when I said that in verse 8, all, I mean, I'm going to list out the commandments. He lists out the, the last half of the Ten Commandments. And he says, and anything else is all fulfilled with this idea. It would be, I mean, maybe the sorority example doesn't connect. If you're trying to get a degree right now, and all the classes that you have to take, and all the things you got to do, and all the fees you have to pay, and the classes that you enjoy taking, and the classes that's like, man, this class is a beating, but I got to take it, and I have to, and it's a part of the degree plan. If, if all of that law could just be fulfilled with this other thing, how epic would that be? That would be amazing, and that's what Paul is saying. That's what God's word is saying, that all of that law that God instituted, that he wasn't accidentally, he intentionally instituted, can be fulfilled with this idea Love, that's huge, that's amazing. But why and how and what the heck, that's where we're going. <clears throat> Here, here's the big idea that, that Paul's making. Loving one another, loving one another is at the heart of what God asks us to do. God gives us the law, he gives us these rules, he gives his people this standard and this way in which to live, but what we're seeing now in light of who Jesus is and now the New Testament and Paul has come on and said, hey look, Loving each other is at the heart of what God was always doing. He didn't change his mind halfway through history. This was always behind what God was doing. And so uh, one way to just try to visually illustrate this is let's say on one side you've got kind of the law, right? Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't covet, right? You've got all of these things of like, okay, these are the don'ts that we know we're not supposed to do. And then it balances with this idea of love each other right? That, that we just are called to love each other. Each other is one word also in the Greek, and so that's why we put it as one word up there, um, <coughs> right? Like, you're tracking with me, right? So this idea of, of we are then called to love each other, um, and that's dramatic. That's this really dramatic claim. Here's the thing. That only makes sense if we have a proper definition of what love is. 
If we have a really shallow view of what love is, and we think, oh, all I gotta do is love people, and we've misdefined the word love, then we're gonna get in a lot of trouble, and we're gonna take passages like this, and we're gonna take them out of context, and we're gonna develop some really wonky theology and, and really weird views of how we follow God and what we think of Christ and start throwing away things in theology that shouldn't be thrown away. And so what I wanna do is I wanna go on a, on a rabbit trail um, and, and try to be brief, um, but I want us to be really important to define what love is, what biblical love, when he says love one another, what is the Bible talking about? Um, our world, the world we live in, um, I'm, st- I'm still triggered from The Bachelor. Man, I'm still triggered from this last season. Anybody else still triggered? Amen? Amen? Okay, cool. Yeah, amen. Oh, yeah. Um, and I'm triggered every year. My wife watches it sometimes when she's feeling less spiritual, and I'll, like, kind of come through <laughs> and, uh, and watch, it, watch it with her. Just kidding, babe. No regrets. I love you. Uh, and, uh, and it just, every year, it just makes me so mad, but I, I watch it because it's a train wreck. Um, and, and in our world, we have defined love in this really shallow, fickle way, right? So help me out here, ladies. There is categories, right, of I, I love you, I am in love with you, I am falling in love with you, right, as a category, yes. And then I, there's a, a relatively new category of I think I'm falling in love with you. Like, I think I'm maybe falling in love with you is, a, is like an official category that like is a status you get to. And so we have this idea of love where love is this elusive thing in our society that we've got to find. And it's largely based and built around this idea of chemistry and feelings and emotion. And we're looking for this magical unicorn of love. And when we find it, this is it. I think this is it. And we're not quite sure if it is. And it's this really dangerous thing of how we have taken love, which is defined and, and created by the God of the universe, and turned it into this whimsical, fleety thing that we try to keep in our hands, and it, and it slips out. And that's not what love is. Not romantic love, not love for a brother or sister in Christ, uh, love for somebody else who we don't know but our heart hurts for. There is this depth of love. And even in the Bible, even in just the Old Testament, um, there are three different Hebrew words, raya, ahava, and dod, and they are all Hebrew words that we just translate in the Old Testament as love. So when you're reading your Bible, you just get to love, but in the Hebrew, they actually had three different words to, to indicate different uh, edges and different nuances of love, one more committed and one more romantic, and so there's these three, and then you have this idea in the Old Testament, it shows up like 250 times hesed, right, and this hesed love in the Hebrew, which is this steadfastness of God and his love. And so we, when we're reading the Bible, we just see love because that's what the English translates it as. But there is a depth to that word that has, gotten, that has gotten misshapen by us. And so if we're to understand what it looks like to love in a way that fulfills the law, we've got to understand the depth of that love. And so I'm going to show you a couple of the, the shapes of what real biblical love looks like. This honestly could be an entire sermon series, and it probably will be at some point, um, in here, but, but for now, I just want to give you this teaser. I want to give you a three kind of tent poles to, to shape love a little better for us. And the first, I, we get from 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. If you've ever been to a wedding, I feel like this is like the verse that you're like, a, you like have to read or somebody has to preach about um, or else it doesn't count, your marriage doesn't count. But he, here it is. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, 
but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. There's so much there. But here we have, right, also the Apostle Paul writing to 1 Corinthians. Uh, he, is, he is starting to define what real love looks like. And he gives all these action words, all these things that personify love. And so here's, here's one of the things that you need to take away as you're trying to figure out what is actual love. Actual love has actions, not just feelings, right? Real biblical love, the, and by biblical, I mean the love that God has designed, our creator designed. He designed it and defines it as something that should have action with it, right? Like it should do these things. There should be some action behind our love and it shouldn't just be feelings. Um, when I first met uh, my wife, I, I, and then I first started dating her. I was scared for like a solid year and I just like had a crush on her and I didn't know what to do. I just we got palms and we're all sweaty. Uh, and finally we go on a date and we start dating. It was going well for us. Um, man, I, my stomach was in knots constantly, man. Those first few dates, that first season of our relationship, part of it was I was gassy, but part of it was just because she just ties my stomach in knots and I don't know what to do and I forget to breathe when I'm talking to her and it was a whole thing, right? No longer, right, no longer do I forget to breathe, right, when I'm with my wife, and no longer do I have these, like, stomach tied in knots, but my love for her is so much deeper, so much deeper, so much richer, so much sweeter, and, and there's action to it, and, and we're going to talk about what some of that action looks like, but it's not just the feelings, and chemistry and feelings are important, right, they're important, but if you're building a house and you're laying a foundation of building walls and putting a roof on, then I would say chemistry and feelings are the wallpaper. It's important, and, it's, and it is great to check it out. And if you walk in, you're like, oh, this is a house. No, this isn't my vibe. Okay, then praise God, maybe move on before you start camping out in that house. I, I get it, but that is not how the Bible, that's not how our author invented it to be. There should be action, not just feelings. Look, look what else there should be. There should be a steadfastness and a committedness to love. Right, biblical love has this steadfastness and this committed idea. It's that word hesed that I talked about earlier. Uh, Lamentations 3, 22 through 24 says this. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Um, there is a steadfastness of how God has shown his love for us. He says, hey, my love isn't based on not only my feelings for you, it, it, it's not even bound by your timeline. He will be steadfast even when we, this entire book is a story of unfaithful people who the God of the universe continues to be steadfastly faithful to. That's who we are. Have you ever heard of this concept of we are the bride of Christ as the church, those who are his followers? We're, a, we're an awful bride, right? We, we are a cheating bride. And yet he is so continually faithful and steadfast to us. If we define love and don't have a part of it, a tentpole that helps shape that to say there is a commitment, right? And we throw around that word so so easily and so loosely, but if there's not a commitment to it, then we're misdefining it, then we're, we're buying into some, something shallow, something fleeting, something that we're searching for. When I say I love, it means that, hopefully it means that I'm saying, man, I'm committed. We stand up here on the stage every week and we tell you guys we love you. 
And the reality is, I, I don't even know half of you. But when we say that, we mean it. When I say that, I mean it. Because we want to put action behind it. Because we want to be here for you. Because we want to be steadfast. It's not just because I feel nice. Again, I don't even know half of you. So it's not a feelings-driven thing. It's that we're committed. And we're so imperfect at it, and we're so bad. And if you've ever tried to text me, and then nine days later, I text you back, right? Like, we drop the ball all the time. I had lunch with a buddy uh, this last week, and we joked that it was like a lunch that we were working on for like three years since he was a college student. He had to do grad school, stick around for an extra year so we could finally have that lunch. And so we're not always good at it, but that's the temple of like, man, are we committed, and are we steadfast, and are we bailing? <clears throat> Third thing, third little tentpole here for love is this. Love is sacrificial. Love is sacrificial, and this is huge, and it can't, I would make the argument that it's not really Christ-like love if there isn't a flavor of sacrificialness uh, at least behind that love or a willingness to sacrifice at least. 1 John 3.16 says this, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. This is how we know love. We love him because he first loved us. This is how we know it, that he sacrificed for us and has given us this model to now say, my life isn't my own. And that is a theme all throughout this book, right? Romans 6, when we were in Romans 6, it was this idea that, man, if we are in Christ, we are dead to ourselves. Romans 12, we are now living sacrifices, living dead people, right? Here in this idea of love is, hey, our life isn't our own. I'm here to sacrifice for someone else. Now, to love someone else is to say, man, I am willing to sacrifice for you. There is something deep there. <clears throat> and let me say this. Um, how many of you, and don't raise your hand, this is rhetorical, um, because it's also a real vulnerable question. It really is. Um, how many of you have heard someone say I love you in a close way and it just wasn't backed up? You just didn't see this. I mean, all of us have, right? All of us have. And honestly, all of us have, have probably done that, right? We're, we're imperfect people. And, and, and oftentimes our love, and not oftentimes, our love is immature. We're growing, we're learning, we're figuring out, we're navigating, we're surrounded by a world that tells us a, a very weird, false, feely version of love that we're kind of searching for, and so that confuses us. And then simultaneously, uh, we, we hurt people with maybe shallow love or, or love that maybe doesn't hold up some of these godly characteristics, not because we wanted to, because that was our capacity. And that's who we are. And we've all got to own that ourselves too and forgive people who that's happened to because we are guilty and will be guilty as well. But that's real and that hurts and that shapes love in a different way for us because it makes it shallow and it kind of shaves off some of those edges of sacrificial and putting action behind it and being committed. Um, and that's hard. But, but if we see it as this, and if we go to scripture and say, okay, let me define this as this, and if we lean into a God who does love us perfectly, even, even though our worldly examples always fall short, but as we do that, then yes, we, we start to see this deep, action-driven, sacrificial, committed love to each other. And then when we have that sort of action-driven, sacrificial, committed love, then yes, we have no room to not fulfill the law. B because loving others like that 
I'm not going to have to worry about, oh, I shouldn't covet, and I shouldn't steal, and I shouldn't murder, and I shouldn't do all these wrongs to somebody because I'm called to love them in this deep, deep way. And I love that. It fulfills the law. In, in fact, I would say I, I am only able to fulfill what God asks me to do in this way when I'm loving the way that I should. And that is awesome, right? That is awesome that because of the gospel, I'm able to love people the way I'm called to love them. And in doing that, it fulfills the law. And this is different and unique than any other faith system in the world, right? Any other faith system in the world um, wouldn't have this. Every other faith and religion um, has a series of prophets, right? A prophet or somebody who kind of has the path forward and the path to God and kind of like, okay, here's the pathway, here's the law, here's how you get to God. That's what religion, that's what theology, that's what a lot of philosophy in, in certain ways does is, man, how do we get there? And so they're gonna offer different ways. Christianity is unique to all of those because it says you're not going to be able to fulfill what I ask you to do. You're not going to be able to be good enough to approach me and I know you're not. And so Christianity is unique in the sense that we don't have a, just a prophet who gave us the rules and the law. We have a God who says you weren't going to make it. And he showed up in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus was God with skin on. And he came to us because we weren't going to be able to work our way to him. And even then, we didn't recognize him and we killed him. And in doing so, he then took on the weight of our sin and our disobedience and all of our shortcomings and all the ways that we blow it. And he took that on and rose again and paid for that. And so now, those who have put their faith in Christ, we get access to that God. And it's completely unique. It's completely unique. And so instead of just focusing on what you're not supposed to do in the Christian life, I think the challenge, right, because of the gospel, is I get to focus on loving how I've been loved. Right? I, I no longer have to just focus on these are the things I'm not supposed to do. I can now focus on this is what I am called to do. Love in a deep way the way that I have been loved. And in doing that, it's gonna, the horse is going to pull the cart. And, and that's a beautiful thing. Okay, part two. <laughs> Remember, I told you, I warned you there was a part two. Part two of this sermon. Here we go. This is quick, but it's really important. And you'll, you'll see how it connects. Look at verses 11 and 12 of, of chapter 13. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Here's what Paul does. He he talks about how we're to treat others, how we're to love other people. And then in verses 11 and 12, he has a section where basically he's saying, hey, we need to be urgent about this, right? Like we, the, the time is coming, right? Like we are now closer to the end than we were at the beginning, right? God is doing a work and there needs to be an urgency because darkness is closing in and we no longer can have our hands in our, in our pockets. We need to now really move quickly in living out this life in front of people. And so he uses this illustration of night and day, the night being kind of the darkness and the sin and, and, and what uh, the law kind of condemns us to and now what Jesus has set us free to. And so he, here he says, okay, now here's how we treat ourselves. Here's how we behave from here on out. Verses 13 and 14. And this is the end of chapter, chapter 13. Very last two verses in this chapter. He says, let us, if the time is at hand, if there's an urgency at stake, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarrel, quarreling and jealousy, 
but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Let me unpack this. Paul now has shifted from how we uh, need to love others and not, and not hurt them in these ways and instead love them. And now he's saying, hey, this is how you need to treat yourself. This is how you need to behave. And he does the same thing. He starts giving us this list of things, of, of, of the, these things that we should avoid. And they're things that are destructive and they're things that are, are dangerous and they're things that God has not designed for us. And it's a category of things, right? Um, and they're things that as a father, these aren't things that he's just, oh, I, I made arbitrary rules. They're things that he says, those are not how I designed you. But this isn't how I designed sex to operate. I created it, God says, and this isn't how, it, this isn't how it's going to be fulfilled. And, and quarreling and jealousy, right? These, these things aren't how I designed you to function. And so we've got these, you know, this category of stuff, right? To not do this, to not commit sexual sin, to not fight with each other, to not quarrel, to not get drunk, to not harbor jealousy. <laughs> that is... And this isn't me picking on you, right? This is, this is our life, right? This is the college experience for so many people. And yet our God says, this isn't what I designed you for. Flee from these things. Here's why I love the gospel. He doesn't just say, here's the rules, don't break them. Do you see what he says? He balances that out and he says, don't do these things. But what does he say instead? Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on Christ. Look, if you're following Jesus, you're not following do's and don'ts. He doesn't have a scorecard. Well, he does have a scorecard, and we lost, right? We lost. We were dead in in the first place, right? And so, yes, there's a scorecard, and we, we totally lost. We totally came up short. We totally couldn't keep what we were supposed to keep to approach and have this relationship with the God, like a personal relationship. And yet he came and he said, yes, I know, and here's my grace. I'm gonna meet you in your defeat and I'm gonna offer you grace. I'm gonna meet you in your shame. I'm gonna meet you in your disobedience and I'm gonna offer you grace. And it wasn't because we scored enough points and got close enough and he said, okay, you're not too bad or okay, you've tipped the scales more in your favor. No, no, we were dead. And we have this God that says, I am good, and I am gracious. And so, yes, flee from these things. But I love that we don't walk out of here and just say, man, I need to be better. The action isn't just to be better. The action is to put on Christ, to put on Christ. Galatians 3.27 says the same thing. It says, as for as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. And so this idea that if you've surrendered your life to Christ, then, then the scorecard you wear is Christ's, not your own, because you're wearing his scorecard. Um, best, maybe weirdest way I could think to illustrate this was, um, let's say you got a horrible gnarly skin disease, right? Gnarly skin disease, and it's like leprosy-esque, super dry and, and rashy, and it's bad, and they don't know what's going on. But by the grace of God, scientists have come up with this cure, and there's this antidote, and there's this cream, uh, medicated thing, and it's expensive, but insurance covered it, and so you're set, right? And you have this cream. And if you had this horrible rash, right, and this horrible skin disease, and somebody came to you and they said, stop having those symptoms. Stop having dry skin. Stop, stop itching. Stop having your fingers fall off from leprosy or whatever it is, right? Whatever the symptoms are of your gnarly skin disease. 
No. I mean, yes, they could say that, but that's not what our God says. He says, hey, I have this antidote. Put this on. Put on Christ. We don't lead with don't do these things. Don't struggle with sexual sin. Yeah, we want to be set free from sexual sin. Don't struggle with drunkenness. Yeah, we, we, we're called to be set free from that and to walk out of that and to, to flee from that and jealousy. I mean, jealousy is everywhere in our society, quarreling and fighting and tension, all of these things. But he is what we're actually pursuing. He is what we're actually chasing, right? Our priority isn't just stopping our sin. Our priority is deepening our walk with Christ. That's our priority. Our priority is how can I put on Christ? How can I wake up and say my life is no longer my own? God, would I walk with you rather than just go to a party and try to be moral enough? That's exhausting. That's exhausting. And, and maybe you're good enough to do that for a while or sexual sin. You are designed, you are designed to have sex, right? It is something that God has designed in you. And now you're thrown into a world where it's like, I'm supposed to not do that? That's crazy and, and countercultural. And yet the Bible is saying, hey, don't just don't do it. Put on Christ. There is something we are adding. We're not just trying to subtract. And what we're adding is a Christ who says, I will be sufficient through you. Through your college experience, through your young adult experience, I will be sufficient. I will give you joy and peace and security and comfort, and I will be enough. And those things God will bring in sweet timing, but trust me, put on me, he says. That is awesome. This idea of putting on Christ is the power. It is the power behind doing what God asks us to do. Putting on Christ is how I live out this life. It's how I flee from the things that I'm called to flee from. And it is a beautiful thing for mature believers to run to that and to say, okay, let me put on Christ. Here's where we go from here. How do we walk out of here? How do we apply this? I want to ask you, I want to put some questions before you to wrestle with and to apply to your own life. And here they are. Um, there's two big themes at the end of chapter 13. One of them is love others, right? The first chunk, first part of the sermon is love others. And so I want you to ask yourself, man, as you love others, is your love active? Right, I, I want you to ask yourself. I want you during worship to spend some time praying. I want you, if, if you're a journaler, journal, or tonight when you're going to bed, ask yourself, man, the way I love others, I am called, if I'm a follower of Christ, to love others. But is the love that I'm showing others active or is it just, oh, yeah, I like those people and I'm, I'm a fan of them? Or is there, is there behavior behind it? Are you serving? Are you doing something? And, and the second question I want you to ask yourself is, is it sacrificial? Is it really sacrificial? Is it really out of your comfort zone how you're loving other people the way you're called to? Um, man, if, if you look up and all the people you're loving are just people you really like, then that's not really sacrificial. Right? Like you don't need the Holy Spirit for that. Like you don't need to put on Christ to love people who are just a blast to be around and your best friends. And so look at your life and say, man, is my life echoing this gospel of how I was loved? Am I loving others in a sacrificial way, people outside my comfort zone? Um, in, in between you and God, figure out what does that look like? And then last question for love others is, is it committed? Is it committed when it's no longer convenient 
Is it committed? And then the last question I want to ask you guys before we get back into worship is this. We're called to love others, but we're also called in, in this passage to put on Christ. That's our armor. That's how we live this Christian life. We put on him in doing that, in, in trying to put on Christ in your life, which is this very ethereal concept. I want to ask you, are you just fighting to stop your sin or are you fighting to walk deeper with Jesus? Are you fighting in your life? Because it's a battle. You're in a battle. And in that battle, are you fighting to just be better? Right, when you go before the Lord and maybe it's been a while and you feel kind of distant and you feel kind of guilty, is as you approach him, you, you feel this guilt of like, I gotta be better, I'm sorry, I know, I need to stop doing this. Or you stiff arm him because you feel like, ah, I know, I'm, I've been doing some bad stuff, I need to clean up some things and then I can kind of reapproach him, right? And, and if that's what we do, then we're falling into this consistent trap of, well, I'm just trying to, um, my fight is to stop my sin and that's not what Christ is calling us to do. He's saying, walk with me deeper and hand in hand, we will defeat your sin. And we, I will set you free from your sin. And so, man, I want to make sure that we walk out of here with more Jesus, not just more behavior modification. Because that's what the gospel does. It's a gospel that says, no matter where you are and what you've done, sisters in this room, no matter what you've done, ladies, no matter how far you think you've run, you have a God who says, and I love you, you are my daughter. And I'm not surprised by it. And I paid for it already. So out of the muck and out of that mire, I have set you free and I have saved you and I have built you a new foundation. Trust me. Quit playing in the muck and the mire. Trust the foundation of grace that I've given you. Men in this room, you have a God who says, yes, come to me. I know you're imperfect. I know you still have sin. I know you're still stuck in ways. Come out of the muck and the mire and look what I've built for you. That's the God we worship. Let me pray. Father, we love you. And we love you because of how you first loved us. And it is so, so sweet. You love us with grace. And, and yet then you also call us to a life of action. You call us to love others the way you have loved us with this deep, action-oriented, sacrificial, committed love to the world around us, God. Would our love mature and deepen, Lord? You call us to behave in a way, to, to treat our own bodies in a way, to, to flee and to stop doing so many of those things that are just waiting around every corner. And yet, God, you provided the way. You provided the solution. You're not a father with your arms folded waiting for us to figure it out. You're a father who has already paved the path for us. So this morning, would we see it? Would we step out of that muck and that mire that we get stuck in so easily and would we just receive your grace? Would we respond to your grace? And would that response look like a life of obedience, a life of loving others, a life of fleeing from the things that we know leave us empty? For your glory, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.